Welcome to the Managing Violence Podcast, the internet's leading free resource on violence prevention, threat assessment, personal security, and self-protection, brought to you by R2S Violence Prevention. We are hashtag for the protectors. I'm your host, Joe Saunders. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Managing Violence Podcast. I'm joined today by Rick Shaw. He is the author of the First Preventers Playbook and the founder of Awarity. We're going to be talking about all the things that get missed leading up to a violent episode and what we can do with that to hopefully prevent violence. Before I get to Rick, just a quick reminder, if you're in the UK or you're in Europe, make sure you check out violencepod.com forward slash UK tour. I am going to be in the UK end of March, early April next year. The weekends are taken care of. The weekends are currently booked. So you've missed out on that. I'm going to be in Oxford with Mary Stevens. I'm going to be in Birmingham with with, uh, Tommy Joe Moore. And I'm going to be in Cambridge with Mike Stilgo. So the weekends are taken care of. However, I am actively looking for martial arts clubs, Uh, private groups, professional groups, corporations, anyone who wants to hear me speak. I want to be busy every single day that I'm in the country. So if you are looking for someone to take over a martial arts class for you, you're looking for someone to give a keynote presentation, you're looking for someone to give a board briefing on workplace violence, I am at your disposal. Please check out www.violencepod.com forward slash UK tour and we will see what dates are available and we'll make it happen. I want to reach as many people in the UK and Europe as I possibly can while I'm there. So if you've got any idea about how I can help, please reach out. Happy to do so. All right, that's the only plug for today. Check out our social media. Jump in the Managing Violence Tribe on Facebook. It is going off at the moment. And uh, make sure you have a look at the bonus content at patreon.com forward slash managing violence. Here we go with Mr. Rick Shaw. I'm joined here on the Managing Violence podcast brought to you by R2S Violence Prevention. And I am joined this morning with Rick Shaw. Rick, thanks for joining us. Nice to be here. Thanks for the invite. Uh, my absolute pleasure, Rick. I, I saw you uh, present a webinar uh, a few months ago. Now we sat, we started chatting, and I uh, thought you'd be an excellent guest for the show. Rick, uh, you're the founder of Awarity and also the author of the First Preventers Playbook. Uh, but for those that don't know much about you, uh, can you give us a quick snapshot of your background and your career to this point? Absolutely. Um, so my background is it goes a long way back to uh, well, if I go way back to sixth grade, it was actually when I first got involved with quote unquote, preventing is a uh, uh, real quick story. But this, there was a sixth grade, I was a, in the gifted class, as I guess they called it. And the, we were in the same building with some of the you know, special needs, special education uh, kids. And there was a girl that was in the, the special ed uh, class that I don't know why, but people always like to bully her, harass her and things like that. And she would get, uh, she would have seizures. And it was really scary for her, scary for kids and everything else. Again, I was in sixth grade at the time. And uh, so I kind of stepped in and tried to keep the kids away from bullying her and stuff like that. Got some friends to help, got my teacher to help. Uh, we, we became first preventers. I just didn't know it at the time. Um, but um, it was it was interesting because I learned a couple really important things. And it really has actually inspired me to continue to, to really focus on prevention. And that is when we did that, there was an immediate uh, return on prevention. And what I mean by that is that, I mean, it was kind of weird when I was in sixth grade because she, the, this girl, she wanted to chase me around and give me kisses. She thought I was her boyfriend. Um, so that was, that was fun. But 
but we, we got to know each other and we, we kept in touch all through the next six years of school. Um, and then at our 25th reunion, I walk in and there's MJ, I call her MJ and there's MJ and, and she, uh, she's married and she's introduced me to her husband, gives me a big hug. Uh, and then we signed up on our reunion website and I get birthday cards from MJ now. And so it really helped me understand how return on prevention is so much better than return on regret, mm-hmm. you know, for not taking those actions. And then over, um, as I was growing up and then had, uh, got married, had a child, uh, Columbine hit in 1999. And that really got my attention. It was a school shooting. My daughter was in school, not in Columbine, but in school. And, and it really got my, my interest. And so started doing research as to why these things weren't preventable or prevented. I found out most of them were preventable. So for the last 20 plus years now, I've been researching literally hundreds of incidents almost every year. And it's not just shootings either. It's uh, bullying, it's suicides, it's human trafficking, it's abuse and other things. And so I really kind of went down that, that uh, prevention rabbit hole as to figure out why do we almost always see the indicators were out there. And so that's kind of what drove my, and I won't go into much, much more detail at this point, but that's really what sort of between my early experience and between the fact that these indicators were always there, I was trying to figure out what was missing. You know, why, why does prevention fail, even though we almost always see in the headlines and the post-incident reports that they should have been preventable. So that's really been my background is, is really just trying to understand that and to try to help provide uh, ways that we can eliminate, you know, what's, what's, or at least find what's missing as to why the prevention fails so often. Yeah. And yeah, as you, as you know, we're, we're very big on prevention here and, and obviously the, the incidents you prevent are the ones you don't have to recover from. So uh, it's uh, it's the, the the dividends of prevention from an organizational level, from a society level, and also from the individual level, right? I mean, if you right. if you can prevent yourself being chosen as a target, then uh, you save yourself a lot of money, a lot of grief, a lot of counseling, and uh, and, and a lot of trauma. Let alone yeah, you know, the potential negative effects if you if you didn't have an adequate response or recovery mechanism in place. So. Uh, I'd, I'd be interested to, to dig deeper. You wrote a book called The First Preventer's Playbook, which grabbed my attention. That was the first thing that, that I wrote down when uh, when you were giving your webinar that I was watching. <laughs> I thought that's, that's such a great title for a book because we talk about first responders a lot, but first preventers, like, t- take us through that that concept. What is a first preventer? Yeah, thanks. Uh, glad it caught your attention too, by the way. I was, I was hoping to do that. Um, but yeah, no, it, it took me back again, kind of what I explained with my, my previous, you know, my early stages is that, but we always know who our first responders are, right? And we always know who, like, is the manager of the emergency management team or the law enforcement, like the chief or, you know, those kinds of things. So we know who leads first responders. But when I started thinking about the prevention side of things, it was like, okay, so who's preventing? Because oftentimes, and especially when we start getting into some of the, the shootings and things like that, we find out that some of these individuals were known, they were well-known, they may have even been monitored by law enforcement. But the problem or the challenge, it's, it's not really, I mean, it's a problem, yes, but the limiting challenges is that first responders, for the most part, especially law enforcement, really can't do anything until there's a crime. Well, by the time there's a crime, a lot of damage can be done. 
And so that's really what got me thinking about, well, something has to happen before responding. We just can't respond fast enough anymore. Maybe we used to, but you know, today, you know, unfortunately the bad guys, if they want to do a lot of damage, they they've got their own playbooks, unfortunately, that they follow also. Um, so anyway, that's kind of what got me started was we needed to have like offense and defense, not just defense. Cause if we're always on defense, if we're always responding, if we're always reacting, uh, not only is that overwhelming for a lot of people, but like you mentioned, I mean, the consequences, the cost, the long-term, uh, you know, long-term consequences and costs as well, the mental health, all those kind of things, those are very, very expensive and very damaging. And so, so yeah, first preventers is, is just a term that not that I came up with, but really tried to expand and create a framework for with the book and to also then summarize a lot of what I learned in the research I've been doing. Mm. It's an interesting challenge, isn't it? Because uh, I think in first world countries in particular, and obviously I'm speaking, I'm speaking for Australia here as opposed to uh, anywhere else, but uh, the, the trend seems to be fairly consistent. When you have a well-developed, robust and relatively trustworthy law enforcement apparatus that you can rely upon, people tend to outsource their safety, right? They, they tend to assume the police have got it. The police will deal with that. Someone's going to call triple O or nine one one or whatever the number is in your country. And, and, right. and it'll be taken care of. And I don't have to do anything, say anything. I don't want to get involved. Not my, not my problem. Right? This is kind of the prevailing attitude because the infrastructure is there. It's interesting talking when I, when I have guests or I, I meet people from, yeah, uh, for lack of a better term, third world countries where the, where those, those legal systems aren't there. And, uh, and you don't want to call the police because the police aren't always uh, your friend. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot more emphasis on community prevention then and community safety, because you have to rely upon your neighbors to keep each other safe. And it's very much harkens back, I think, to uh, you know, how things used to be and, and, and how probably our, our evolution for the vast majority of, of our history on the planet has, has been the, the strength of the tribe and the community and sharing of information. Uh, and, uh, by way of getting to the next question, um, speaking to a, a friend of mine who's a, a detective for a, a, a police agency here in Australia who, uh, who, who works in the counterterrorism space, uh, it's one of, the, one of the biggest frustrations they have is that they can have someone on a watch list and have dedicated surveillance and can have dedicated um, you know, resources for that, for that one individual or that group of individuals. And they may know that there's an attack coming and they may know that there's a plan and they may know that there's a certain number of people involved. But until they have adequate evidence, they can't act because otherwise, if they act too soon, the whole thing, the whole thing scatters. They have no charges that stick and you haven't prevented anything. It's just moved somewhere else and they're going to find it again. Um, so it's, it's that finding that right timing of when do you intervene versus when do you wait and watch? And sometimes you watch too long and the attack happens. Sometimes you, you go too quick and you don't achieve anything. Uh, and that's the eternal frustration for them is knowing something's going to happen, but not having enough information to be able to, escalate to the next stage. And I know uh, to, to lead into what I know you're going to talk about is, is how do we connect those dots and, and how do we find those dots that how, how do we, how do the police and law enforcement agencies and so on that are going to be responding? Where do they get those dots from? It's going to be from the community, right? Exactly. No, absolutely correct. I mean, the community and whether it's and back to your point about third world countries and, and law enforcement and things like that, even, you know, like, not just in the United States, but where I'm from, the United States, um, you know, some of the defund police. I mean, there's some there's a widening gap of trust in some areas with law enforcement too, even when it's present. Um, so, 
uh, and even like I say, not in, in a non-third world country, if you will. But but yeah, so back to your community um, comment is that the community almost always, and like I said, I've been studying these, these failed prevention now for 20 plus years, almost always the community has the, uh, the pieces of the puzzle, you know, the, 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 the other dots, if you will, if we're connecting the dots, but they have those other indicators that law enforcement may not have. So law enforcement typically might have, like you said, they might even be on a watch list. They might be aware of them. They might be aware of some things, but unfortunately what we find out in the after uh, post reports often is that the rest of the information was out in the, in the community. People had more than enough information where they could have uh, stepped in earlier. They didn't have to wait for the crime to occur, but um, you know, there's so many, I call them GSDs, so many gaps, silos, and disconnects in our communities. Some are unfortunately created, you know, by, for example, incident reporting. So a lot of those indicators are going to come in from incident reports, um, people observing these concerning behaviors, suspicious activities, whatever. But what we're finding is, what the research is revealing is, is that in many cases, people did report the indicators but they might've reported it to a school or a business or a department, a trusted adult, you know, someone that each of those ended up being silos. And so those silos aren't getting, that information isn't getting brought together to be connected with what law enforcement knows. Cause law enforcement, I'm not knocking them at all, but sometimes they don't share information as well either. So the information sharing is the big problem. And uh, there's privacy and all other kind of barriers, but but the problem is really is that not only is it that are there's multiple silos, but I mentioned instant reporting. We've got hotlines, we've got text lines, we've got apps, we've got emails, we've got websites, we've got you know, and most of those options. And then there's local and state and federal or you know different levels of instant reporting hotlines too. Most of those go to silos. They don't all go to the same location, those indicators. And so again, that's another big problem we found is that um, we're sort of dividing or scattering our, our dots right out of the chute. And it makes it very difficult sometimes to put those dots and those pieces of the puzzle back together to see that bigger picture so we can act sooner. Mm -hmm. And so that's really one of the areas that I focused on, I'm, you know, with first preventers as well. Uh, the whole framework is not just being a first preventer as a person, but how do we start bringing all these dots together on a community-wide and even a regional or even wider net potentially um, because of social media and things like that? How do we start bringing all those dots together in a trusted way? And so you're right, that's a, that's a huge challenge. But the thing is, is that uh, now that we've been doing it for a few years, we know it's actually possible to accomplish it. Absolutely. And I think it's uh, what you're articulating there is uh, we, we have to leverage the existing relationships and the existing touch points that we have, uh, because it, it can't just be a law enforcement or intelligence agency function, because they're, they're never going to get all the information that that is out there. Uh, and to your point about trust as well, I think the uh, one of the hesitations that it sometimes comes up when let's say a, a faith leader might have concerns about uh, a congregant uh, they, they don't want to necessarily 
call a national security hotline about that because one, they care about this person uh, and they don't want a law enforcement response because they don't want them to be arrested. They don't want their family to be without a father or they don't want, uh, you know, God forbid the person to be, to be killed. Uh, so they tend to sit on that information because they don't know how to escalate that, how to report it, how to raise a concern about it without fear of the, what the, what the outcome will be. So there's, even if people don't have an adversarial relationship with police, they still might not report because they're concerned about what the the sometimes blunt response uh, might be. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, just talking to a, a client in the, in the tertiary education space about setting up a threat management protocol, uh, there's there's so much where uh, talking to the security people, there's, well, you know, if we sit down and talk to a student about their mental health, they're never going to talk to us. It's like, well, of course not. Like, I'm not going to talk to the security manager about my mental health. Like, why would I? But there will be friends and there will be trusted teachers and there will be mentors within that system that may hear something or that may notice a change in behavior. And if they know that there's a way that they can uh, report that and escalate those concerns in a way that's going to result in that student getting the help they need, as opposed to being expelled or being dragged out of a class by security, maybe there's maybe we can build something now where there's, where there's information because it might be that one dot that comes from the the uh, the teacher that's that's been told something and then another dot from a counselor and another dot that comes from a reception staff or a custodian who happens to see them doing something a bit weird like when you start putting those dots together it builds a story as opposed to just a weird conversation uh, absolutely and, and you and real quick you hit on a couple of really key points there uh, almost like you set it up and I know you we didn't even talk about it but it, <laughs> uh, but the point is is that you talked about fear. Okay, you know, or potential consequences of reporting to, you know, consequences to that individual, whatever. But also you talked about help. And that's another key word is that one of the, in in addition to the reasons you mentioned, there's people don't like to snitch either, right? Um, Snitches get stitches and all those kind of things that we hear about um, or worse. But the thing is, is that one of the things that, and we saw that over and over again, the underreported or the non-reported dots, you know, they're so, so important. Um, we have to give people a way to come forward that is not, like you say, law enforcement. Who wants to talk to law enforcement about mental health? Or, or you know, may, may not even want to talk to your school or your business about it because it may potentially hurt your, your, your position there. So you might go to a nonprofit or a house of worship or someplace like that. So how do we get that? Well, one of the things we've, we've done with the first preventers um, framework, if you will, also is we've, we've looked at that and said, and we've, we've basically taken the butterfly effect. The butterfly effect is, you know, one small thing can make a huge difference or make a huge change or the flap of a wing can turn into a swirl and a hurricane, you know, all kinds of different things out there. But the way we use it is that one small thing can save a life, save a friend, save a bottom line, save a reputation, help someone. And, and the thing is what we're finding is with our clients is that when you take a tip line and either replace it, rebrand it, whatever, but with ours, it's, it's, it's a butterfly effect. And we use a little butterfly for an icon and it's got an A in it. So it stands for action because people want action too. That's another reason why people quit reporting. It's like, well, I report it, nothing happened. Why would I report it again uh, the next time I see it? So kind of bringing that all together, it's a butterfly with an A in it. And basically it's all about, now you can click this and you can help. You're not snitching, you're helping. And that you may be helping that person. So back to your example you gave, or you might be helping yourself um, or a family member or something like that. So 
there's a that's a great point because that's where a lot of those dots get lost or at least they sit in a silo uh one of those you know gsds i was talking about they sit in a silo if it's in a silo we can't see that bigger picture and if we can't see the bigger picture it's hard to take action yeah and i think we we all have different context on a situation right Uh, i mean you you might have a a a neighbor or a friend and and you know them quite well so therefore their behavior in the context of that relationship is going to be interpreted differently than that behavior being observed by a stranger who doesn't have context and they just go that's really freaking weird like whoa Uh, and you're like no he's just always weird it's it's been weird for 20 years right (laughs) this isn't a change this is this he's just eccentric that's pretty normal (laughs) yeah (laughs) i had a professor once that's a great point though that's a great point uh, I had a professor once who told me the difference between being eccentric and being crazy is whether it impro- whether it damages your quality of life or not. And I thought, well, that's, I like that. I, I kind of like that as well. It's like, well, you're crazy, but you're happy about it. So I guess that just makes you eccentric. Yeah, um, there you go. <laughs> uh, let's let's talk a little bit about um, some of the practicalities that you've observed. You, you've studied hundreds, if not thousands, of of incidents over, over the last well over your whole career. What are some of the commonalities that you identify that some of the, some of the earlier points where, where something could have been prevented or some of the things that people noticed that were not reported that may have made a difference? Well, I think that, so, and early on, I mean, that's a great question because early on, and I've always had child, uh, child safety has really been one of my biggest passions. And so we did a lot of work with schools early on. We still do. And we, but we've expanded that. But one of the things I've noticed, especially with schools um, and even organizations with employees too, but is that we always tell people to, 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 you know, reach out to someone who's a trusted adult, right? We use that term trusted adult. And if you're in school, it might be a teacher. If you're in, if you're working, it might be your manager or something like that. What I've seen over and over and over again is, is that a lot of times that trusted adult, um, let's, let's take a school, for example, a kid comes to a teacher and says, Hey, I'm being bullied. Um, the teacher in that classroom basically addresses it, talks maybe to the bully, but thinks they handled it, right? And they tried. They did their best. Absolutely not knocking them. But what they don't see, that trusted adult, what they don't see is what happens after that kid leaves that classroom. When that kid is you know, walking home or on a school bus or online or whatever the case may be. And so that piece of the puzzle that that trusted adult has stays there because they think they fixed the situation when in reality they had a piece of the puzzle that needed to be connected with other pieces of the puzzle. And it's the same thing with adults in a workplace, you know, a lot of times too. Um, Maybe they tell a supervisor, they tell a coworker, they tell a manager, they tell the HR director or whatever. And they, and that that person may have fixed it, but what they don't see is the the bigger picture. So I see that a lot. I see that a lot where, um, you know, the, the protocols that we're following are sort of outdated, if you will. And again, they lead to being, you know, scattering the data or not getting people to come forward with it in some cases. So that's, that's some of the problems I've seen over and over and over again, some of the commonalities. The other ones are just, you know, you do tell HR and it goes into the HR system. It doesn't get shared with anybody else um, or security system or law enforcement, you know, those kind of things where, these, these dots are getting placed into systems thinking that, you know, and they're being documented, which is great, but they're not being shared. So the, the, really, the really big common thing without getting, you know, to a whole bunch of detail that would take hours, 
don't want to do that. But, you know, is the information sharing. That's what's really, really getting uh, or leading to a lot of failed preventions. And I should say the lack of information sharing. And, you know, that's just because the reasons I just talked about, but also there's things about privacy. There's things about, um, you know, that don't want to get somebody in trouble. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different things. We probably in our own heads can think of many of those, but the idea is that that information is just not getting shared. And if it doesn't get shared, you know, whether it's the example you gave with law enforcement or if it's the threat assessment team within an organization, um, you know, they, they just can't take action. And one more thing I want, that's a, another commonality that I've seen is a lot of times I, training is great. Don't get me wrong. We got to have training, but I think there's almost too much of a replacing too much value almost on it in the end result value. I'm saying, meaning that we think that if we trained a threat assessment team, we're ready to go. Well, but the threat assessment team, going back to what I was just talking about too, is if they don't see all the pieces of the puzzle or if law enforcement, the example we talked about earlier, even though they're sort of not necessarily a threat assessment team, but they're trained really well, right? Um, and threat assessment teams can be trained really well. A surgical team can be trained really well, but if they all don't have the right tools to do what they need to do, and in, in this case, share information, um, they fail. You know, um, we get, you know, I don't want to say lucky because we do prevent a lot of incidents, and that's fantastic. But the challenge is, though, that what I'm seeing in the research is that we're not preventing the ones that are, you know, not trying to get caught, or the ones, you know, the ones that are really, or the ones that are maybe smarter than others. We've all seen kind of the. The, the, the examples and we laugh at the the dumb burglars, you know, and stuff like that. So it's like, well, what a stupid move. And you're going to get caught, you know, leaving your billfold behind or leaving, you know, all kinds of stupid things. Right. Well, we, we do catch them, but it's, just, it's in the, it's, it's the more intelligent attackers that we're not catching, but they can do the most damage. And that's why it's so, so important to, for this information sharing to, to actually be improved upon. Absolutely. I find another one of the, the hurdles for information sharing is whenever there's a culture of that's not my job or it's, it's not my responsibility to do that or I want to stick to my lane. I don't want to I don't want to be sticking my nose out, especially when it's someone who who maybe has um, maybe new. They don't have seniority. They're still trying to establish their place in the pack. They don't want to ruffle feathers like they, they don't want to make the, they don't want to draw attention. Right. They don't want to draw fire to themselves. And um, it's, it's it's incredible the gaps that occur when that happens. And uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to read the, the new book that's come out from uh, uh, Dr. Gillian Peterson, Dr. James Densley, uh, The Violence Project, um, which... Uh, I have not read it yet, but I have oh, seen it. Yeah, I, I highly recommend it uh, from a school shooting point of view, especially a uh, mass shooting point of view, especially, but uh, I'll hopefully get uh, one or both of those authors on, on the podcast as well. But um, there's, there's so many great stories great but tragic stories in there of uh after an incident looking back and the number of teachers that said oh, i knew or i saw something or i i could have done something but they escalated it through whatever channel was available to them to your point that the tools were not there for that information to be collated and i guess assessed appropriately and and it's fine to have a threat assessment team that are well trained or a security team that's well trained but if they, if they don't have the information to be able to action and, and that information is not readily accessible and it's, and no one knows how to, how to contribute to it and no one knows how to make sense of it. 
well, what was the point, right? It just, it just becomes colloquial. If I happen to catch you around the water cooler and that incident's still bothering you and you happen to tell me about it, then we find out about it. It's a, it's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of maybes uh, to be able to stop something that, that is potentially a you know, life-changing tragic event. But uh, yeah, there's, there's a bunch of things I want to kind of touch on real quick is that um, so like at GSX uh, global security exchange conference that just got done. Um, we, we presented down there uh, myself and Jason Destine, uh, but, but Jason talked about, he did, uh, I think it was the police foundation is who actually did the report, but it was an averted school shooting report. And there was 161 or 162 examples. Wow. What was amazing though, and these are you know information they've collected from schools that they averted uh, a, a bad situation. What was interesting was that like, I think it was like 130 or more of those 160 total were averted in the day of or the day before. And it was, and a lot of the day ofs were guns jamming and things like that. I mean, it was, I don't want to say luck, but it was luck. I mean, it was, you know, and luck, it's good to have luck on your side. Don't get me wrong, but it's not a good strategy to have on your side. Um, so interesting that you bring that up because like I say, that's a lot of times it's sort of that last minute. A lot of the preventions are last minute because something goes your way or a kid does run and say to somebody and says, Hey, somebody's got a gun, but those, that last line of defense can also be very easily not the last line of defense. I mean, they can get around that. We've seen that over and over and over again. So preventing earlier on and getting all that information beforehand is so critical because a lot of the books I've read out there, and I haven't read this one and I want to, but they talk about like the um, pathway to violence, mm. right? And they talk about how all these indicators were there. Are these teachers, like you said, I kind of recognize that. I thought they might be the next school shooter or whatever. I mean, it's, and they feel that return on regret almost for not doing something more. But what I've tried to do in my research too, is just to, to look at things, you know, really differently saying, well, if there's a pathway to violence, then there's a pathway to prevention. Mm. And so we look at it as a pathway to prevention, but again, it depends on getting all those indicators so you can see as they're doing it versus after they've already done it, mm. right? Because they're there. It's just a matter of whether you're collecting them and connecting the dots or not, you know? And so, um, so that pathway to prevention is what we call it because I think if we can get people, like I say, it's sometimes just a mindset, whether you're snitching or helping, mm. whether it's a pathway to violence or a pathway to prevention and really trying to get people in, on board to, to know that, oh, there's a pathway to prevention not just a pathway to violence, you know, and, and if, once we get the people seeing that it can be a, it's, it's almost like a, I mean, it's not just that you still have to have all the tools and everything, but it's, it's getting people on board to see that it's possible and that they can make a difference. Yeah. Uh, and I think that just trying to educate people about what they're actually looking for. And, and this is a, a concept that, uh, that I've just started playing with recently. I, I haven't really, um, I haven't really been able to validate it yet, but it's just an interesting idea that sort of been stuck in my head. Uh, and that is that uh, when we're looking at mass casualty events, whether it's terrorism, whether it's a, a school shooting, whether it's a you know, mass stabbing, uh, which you know, still happens in countries that have tight firearm regulations like that, uh, 
if you ask the general public to look for signs that someone is homicidal, I, most people have no idea what a homicidal individual looks like. Right? Their, 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 their version of what a murderer looks like is very much informed by Hollywood. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and therefore, they're looking for someone who is psychotic uh, or, or someone who, who, I don't know, is dragging the corpse of a family pet behind the car. Right? They're, they're looking for very overt this right. is weird, right? Someone who's already in an intense crisis. But it's interesting with, with mass casualty events, there seems to be a massive overlap with suicidal tendencies as opposed to homicidal tendencies. So if, if you were to ask someone to look for the signs that someone might be suicidal, all of a sudden that's something that is a little bit more accessible. Uh, that there's someone, someone who is not thinking about the future, someone who is, who is talk, being very fatalistic in their, in their language or, uh, they're talking about not being around for long. Like those are the sort of things, uh, as we know, like, especially looking at school shooters, there's, there's very rarely an exit plan, right? There's, there's very rarely are they planning to get away with this. Uh, it's, it's nearly always a, a suicide mission. But, um, but just giving people some tools on these are the kinds of behaviours that should be raising flags. And again, coming back to what we, we started talking about it with a focus on help as opposed to enforcement, uh, if so, like school shooters typically need help. They, they, they don't necessarily, I mean, some, sure, absolutely. Uh, yeah, that they, 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 they boat might have sailed already. But um, there's, by and large, I mean, we get it early enough, these, these kids need help. You're exactly right. And, you know, the, the kind of ties in with the, there's been a, a tremendous focus over the last 20 years that I've been studying this that like the Secret Service and the FBI here in the States, and then there's other international organizations as well. Uh, there's the psychiatry associations and others out there too. Um, but there's been a real focus on what is the profile of a mass shooter, right? Um, and to your point, maybe rather than looking at it from what are the signs of a quote unquote shooter to what are the signs of someone who's suicidal, mm. I mean, to your point, that makes a lot of sense because um, rather than because there is no profile of a mass shooter. I mean, that's what they keep coming back and telling us at the end of the of the of their research that they do. And so that really kind of got me going too. it's like, well, if there's no profile of a shooter. Now, there are some common behaviors and indicators. Absolutely. But there's really no profile. But I started looking at this. So what's the profile of a failed prevention? Okay, because those are two different things but they work together. And when you start looking at prevention, it's not just about shooters. It's definitely about people who are suicidal. It's about bullying. It's about, um, you know, the abuse, trafficking, all kinds of things like that, right? Because the, 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 the pathway to prevention is like six stages. And I can talk about those in a little bit, but the, but the idea is that if we can get people looking for indicators that, of people that need help to your point. Um, there's many different situations I've studied over the years where, yeah, the, the shooter is basically saying, can someone just help me here before I have, before I go do this, you know, if you're not going to help me, then I'm just going to go do this, uh, type of a thing. Same with suicide. We've seen, you know, really, really sad situations where people are basically putting on social media. I need help in signs. They've made it. Yeah. They've made themselves. I should say, and nobody's come to their, you know, to, to help them. And so 
if we can get people, and I know we can, but if, and that's kind of that butterfly effect. It's all about helping, right? If we can help get people to look for people who need help, then before they get to that point, that violence, escalation, that kind of pathway to violence or whatever, whether it's against others or themselves, we can intervene. We can disrupt that pathway, if you will. And real quick point on bullying, um, because bullying is, has, uh, it's a common thing that a lot of the shooters will reference, like in their manifestos and things like that. I mean, pretty much people who do those kind of things, they have some sort of grievance, right? And then that grievance turns into, it starts boiling or whatever inside of them. And then they have ideations and preparing, planning, and then whatever. But if, if we can get people to identify, you know, those indicators, that's how we can intervene before that grievance gets worse. Because a lot of bullies, I'm sorry, people who are bullied can, can become bullies. Like, it's like, well, I've asked for help and I didn't get help. So I, the only way I can deal with this is to become a bully or to maybe turn to drugs, maybe to commit suicide or whatever. But the idea is that a lot of times bullying, not all the time, but a lot of times bullying is a key thing. So that's why we got to get started early in that process. You know, not just wipe, say that's kids being kids, because for some kids it might be, but not for all kids. So that's where it comes back to help also. How do we help make sure that, well, even when I was in sixth grade, I mean, that was a little bit different situation, but she was being bullied and somebody had to step in. And that's what we did. Yeah, absolutely. Oftentimes kids that are being victimized will become become perpetrators themselves purely as a way of establishing some control over their circumstances. You know, they've, they've learned the way to, to, to have control and to have some sense of esteem is to dominate somebody else. So rather than, uh, rather than, than be dominated, they, they find someone weaker or whether, or yeah, in some cases they turn to you know, victimizing animals or something like that to, as a way of asserting some sort of dominance and power again. Uh, interesting enough, I've just completed a, a little piece of work on um, profiles of uh, uh people that have been radicalized by various hate groups, uh, especially in Western countries. And the, the, the amount of commonality and background is quite astounding. Uh, and it's, it's, it's very seldom got to do with ideological belief. It's usually to do with their rejection sensitivity. Have they been rejected by people in the past? Have they, be, have they had an absentee or an abusive parent? Uh, have they been socially excluded? And uh, there's actually an astounding amount of evidence about uh, recruiters for various hate groups, and we're not not just talking about um, uh, uh, jihadis or or, uh, or or others that that are that are in the mainstream. But you know, we're talking about alt right. We're talking about the Nazis. We're talking about the Klan. Right? Uh, recruiters well, from gangs. the gangs. Yeah, yeah gangs. exactly. Exactly the same recruiting process. Right? They um, they literally lurk on online forums like a Reddit uh, subgroup that's loosely aligned, not extremist, but loosely aligned with their their viewpoint. Uh, and they wait for people to vent about things like a breakup or being fired or not being able to get a job. And then they strike in that moment when they're feeling rejected and they're feeling excluded and they start offering the sense of community and the significance and the achievement and the, the loving family replacement and all these things that for, especially you're talking about a 16 to 24 year old kid, uh, those things are intoxicating if you've never had it before. And, and it's, it's quite fascinating that the, you know, psychologically speaking, people will sacrifice their own moral values if it means being accepted by a group. Uh, and, 
I think to, to come back to what we're talking about with that, you, when you start connecting those dots, there are signs early that this kid or this person is vulnerable to radicalization because I, I might know a little bit about their family history, because I might know that they're going through a really tough time at the moment. And uh, if we look at where the globe is, <laughs> the global community is at the moment, we've got an awful lot of people that are sad, isolated and lonely at the moment. Uh, and it's it's something we need to be paying attention to because not everyone is going to be dealing with this as well as others. And speaking from <laughs> coming to you live from the world's most locked down city at the moment, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a real concern because there's a lot of people that have been socially isolated. And unless you have the infrastructure and support systems to better manage that, it's, uh, it's a real concern. It's a huge problem. And we're seeing it here in the States. We're seeing it at other places as well. But um, when you have, we, we have more, and I use the term at risk. Um, there's other terms that can be used, but I'm just saying, but people who need help, people who are, like you say, isolated, maybe they're struggling with depression or whatever, but they could be at risk to themselves, could be at risk to others, both, whatever the case. But we've got globally more at risk individuals right now, mostly because of COVID and the, but not all, because there's other things related to that with politics and all, you know, masks and vaccinations and all kinds of things, right? So there's lots of grievances to, to, for people to grasp onto, and there's lots of at-risk individuals who are looking for something to grab onto. Um, and so it's, it's a huge problem right now. And then we're seeing it here when people do like re, return to quote unquote normal, it's not really normal, but return to getting back out there again, then it can lead to a lot of clashes you know, or violence or whatever. Um, it can also lead to things like, you know, we talked about gangs and terrorism and all, all, but also like human trafficking, you know, that's really a big, huge problem as well. And again, you can, it sounds good to some of these kids that, wow, someone will care for me, take care of me, give me money. And then they just become a slave. Um, and it, it's really sad. So no, you're exactly right. I mean, it's, there's so many people out there and that's why, um, not to harp on it, but I mean, it's, it's so, so important that organizations and communities have the right tools to be able to, because we were barely keeping up before all this, right? I mean, think about the last 20 years and all the incidents and stuff that I know I've studied, you've heard of everything else and you studied as well, but now it's like, there's so many more at-risk individuals out there and so many more grievances that we need something to really isolate, not isolate, like, but identify is what I'm looking for to identify these people who need help. And then we got to get them help. Uh, it reminds me, we're working with a, a school system right now that, that has done some really cool things with truancy with kids, you know, missing school, right? Because some of them might go join a gang. Some of them might be on the street. Some of them, you know, whatever, if they're not going to school and they've done some really, real cool things to, instead of making truancy, they used to talk about sort of, grab these kids and bring them to, you know, bring them to class, you know, almost like a, like they're penalizing them almost, right. Uh, or penalizing them for not being in class. Now they've really, this, the city and this community we're working with and the school system, they've really reversed that whole thing as to how do we help them back to that help word again, right? How do we help them? What do they, I mean, do they need clothes? Maybe they're not coming to schools. They don't have any clothes. Maybe they don't have any, you know, food. Maybe they don't have a, a ride to get to school. Maybe their, you know, their parent was, has gone or left or was in jail or 
and it's really trying to identify those people who need help so that we can in, get involved early on to get them reconnected in a good way versus, as you just mentioned, getting maybe reconnected in a negative way or a violent way or some other not so good way. Yeah, agreed. And uh, we, we keep we keep coming back to the same theme, which is we, we need to help each other, right? We, we, if we're in a position where we have access to information, where we have concerns over someone, um, you know, it's it's our duty. I mean, this the show we, our hashtag is for the protectors, right? If we're serious about protecting people, it can't just be about you know, going to the range and 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 putting putting some lead down the line. Like it, it can't it, that, that that isn't sure. That's a subset of protection, maybe. But there's so much more that we can do every single day to protect vulnerable people, and a lot a large part of that is sharing information, and and it's about keeping our eyes open and not being not not being uh complacent about what's happening around us it's it's identifying signs of human trafficking or, or modern slavery and and recognizing that the slavery doesn't look like people chained up in a field anymore it might be someone working at a 7-eleven right uh, like it's all those right. things we, we need to be aware of uh, uh by, by way of uh, of rounding out our main interview before we go to the bonus uh the bonus section i would just like to give a platform i guess for for some practical tips some, so I guess some starting points for anyone who's a who's in a responsible position, whether they're a faith leader, a teacher, a school administrator, or whatever. They're in an organization. They want to try and build a framework so that we can connect more of these dots. What are some of the practical things they can do to get started? Well, I think that I mean you can certainly go and do all your own research, <laughs> okay, which is probably not suggested. Uh, but get in touch with someone you know, like myself, like you, whatever, but to someone who's been doing this for a while, and, and certainly I would uh, shamefully, I or maybe non-shamefully, say go to firstpreventers.org. You know, firstpreventers.org is is a organization, it's a nonprofit organization where we're all about trying to help uh, people, and help schools, help organizations, help communities, but to give them that framework that you identified or you mentioned, you know, because it's not just adding another hotline. It's not just, you know, putting in a threat assessment team. It's not just doing some training. Um, it's not just telling somebody what the indicators look like. Um, because most people, again, I, I haven't seen hardly, I don't think I've, I'm not sure I've ever seen a, a post-incident report where there weren't enough indicators that people did observe and did document. That's not counting all the things that weren't documented, right? But so the, the key is to, to basically get a first preventer slash helping framework in place that, and make sure that it's equipped, you know, make sure you equip your people with the tools to actually, and I, I mentioned earlier, the, the, the pathway to prevention, you really need to understand that. So if people don't understand, if they're a leadership position and they really don't understand what the pathway to prevention is, again, I recommend uh, firstpreventers.org or, or warity.com, one or the other, but because we spell that out or my book, um, I spell it out in the book as well. But it's really all about, you know, assessment is really like the third, second or third, however you want to number it, phase of this pathway to prevention. Before that, we have to do all that collecting, we have to do all that funneling, we have to do all that sharing, we have to do all that because otherwise, if that information doesn't happen or if that those steps don't happen, then the threat assessment team who has primarily been put in place to help get things moving, they can't take any action. So that's the biggest thing I see over and over again is that 
you know, we've got the instant reporting, we've got the threat assessment team, but we're missing in the middle here, you know, we're missing big time in the middle there. Uh, and then not just after that, but then how we start connecting all the dots with all the resources. So that says, you know, this pathway is just a continuous circle really, because once some at-risk individuals may be identified, it could be an ex-employee, ex-student, whatever, they don't really go away. Uh, the risk may not go away. Um, if, especially if they still have these grievances and they're still going to try to have, you know, pay somebody back, if you will, or get somebody back or join a gang or join, you know, some terrorism group or whatever. So again, I think that the, if you are a leader, you'd really need to, to really understand what the pathway to prevention is and really understand how to get that in place in your organization or your community or both really. Yeah, well said. And uh, to your point, don't reinvent the wheel, right? You're, you're a specialist in what you do. If you need advice in this, it's, it's more than a quick Google search. Uh, let's get, get someone in who, who, is a, who is a legitimate expert to, to help you get it started. It doesn't mean you have to pay someone to, to, you know, to be an in-house contractor, but uh, at least get you started on the right path so that you can, uh, you can marshal your resources accordingly. Uh, Rick, uh, just, just on, by way of closing, uh, I highly recommend everyone check out your First Preventers playbook, the book, firstpreventers.org, awarity.com. Uh, make sure you check out those resources. Rick is a, a wealth of knowledge. He does a lot of uh, a lot of guest speaking, a lot of webinars at the moment. So if you if you have an opportunity to sit in and learn from Rick, it's uh, highly recommended. I um, I stayed up to an un, really unsociable time of night to to make sure I checked out one of his webinars. I think and I think was, it was, that uh, was darn nice of you because that was the the Africa one, wasn't it? Yeah, I did it. Yeah, you got a, got an American talking to an Australian via Africa. So I mean, yeah, this, yeah. these are the links we go to 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 expand our professional but knowledge. But we connected the dots, Joe. We connected, we connected the, dots. the dots. The internet is good for that for sure. All right, Rick. I know you guys stick around and do some bonus questions, but for those that are leaving us here, thank you very much for your time and uh, and all the best with your future work. Thanks, everyone. Thank you once again to Rick Shaw for a fascinating interview around awarity and the First Preventers playbook. Remember to check out violencepod.com forward slash UK tour. If you're in the UK and you're interested in hosting me, this is your chance to do it. Violencepod.com forward slash UK tour. All right, I am going to be back next time with Bill Duchesne, who is the Director of Training at Gavin DeBecker & Associates. You don't want to miss that one. It's a great episode. I look forward to talking to you next time.